In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you may be seated. I had two conversations this week about evil in the world. One with a friend who simply wants to give his coworkers a good answer to the question. After last week's synagogue murders, and this was even before uh, this weekend's murders in Tallahassee, why would a good and powerful God allow evil into the world in the first place? The other conversation was with another friend who is trying with all his might to hold on to his faith. You see, 18 months after his mother's life was taken in a violent crime, my friend's father has just died under mysterious circumstances. How could, he asks, a good and powerful and loving God let stuff like this happen? The Midrash, which is an ancient commentary on the Hebrew Scriptures, makes an observation about the first letter of the first word in the Hebrew Bible. That word is Bereshit, and we translate it with the phrase, in the beginning. And the word Bereshit starts with Ba, the Hebrew letter Bet, which is, like in English, it's the second letter in the alphabet. What the Midrash observes, and I'm going to have to update, update their illustration. What the Midrash observes is the shape of the first letter in the Bible is like this. Now, Hebrew reads from right to left. And it's shaped with, it's shaped with a floor and then a closed back and a closed top and open out in the direction in which the reader's eyes are going to go. Sort of like the, imagine the, the Lake Eola band shell with a back and a floor and an opening. Just as a band shell gathers sound and pushes it out to the audience, the letter bet with which the Hebrew Bible begins, gathers the eye's attention and forces the reader to move forward in the direction of the story. The Bible doesn't begin with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Hebrew Aleph, the Greek would be Alpha, the English A, doesn't begin with the beginning letter because the Bible's not going to answer beginning questions that we might like to have answers to. Because God himself is the Aleph, or the Alpha, the A, or the beginning. We don't get why God created in the first place. We just get that God created. Oh, and by the way, what he created was good, very good. We don't get why he allowed evil and bad decisions in the first place, we get simply that he's in the business of fixing evil. And instead of leaving us 
to live with the consequences of bad decisions in love. His story is about turning those bad decisions to the good and making our lives testimonies to his grace and mercy. And that's why we're given these three incredible scriptures today. That's why the prophet Isaiah can say, even as deserved as Israel's coming exile is, that exile will not be the end. Not only will there be an eventual homecoming to the historical land of promise, but even beyond that, there will be a day in which death will be swallowed up forever, when all tears will be wiped away, and we will all be seated for a divinely hosted feast of celebration at the restoration of all things. That's why in the second place from our second scripture reading, that's why from the Isle of Patmos, where Roman persecution has brought the Apostle Paul, because the Apostle John, because of his faith in Christ, John the Revelator can look ahead to the day when God brings a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, when God will personally dwell among us, when he will wipe away every tear, when death will be no more, when every one of us will be beyond mourning and crying and pain, when as the Jerusalem Bible so elegantly renders verses 5 and 6, then the one sitting on the throne spoke, now I am making the whole creation new. Write this, he said, that what I am saying is sure and will come true. And then he said, it is already done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. And that is why in our third scripture, this same John the Revelator, as the writer of the gospel, depicts Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, standing in front of his tomb, Lazarus, weeping. Let's talk about Jesus' tears. First, what they're not, and then what they are. Jesus' tears in front of the tomb of his friend Lazarus are not tears of despair and hopelessness. Jesus knows full well, as does everybody else, that he could have intervened earlier, and he knows that he's about to do so now. Further, he knows that this raising of his friend will only be temporary and that its long-term effects depend upon another raising of his own on Easter morning. So what are Jesus' tears? Jesus' tears are tears of affection. He weeps in the first place because he loves. He sees the grief of Lazarus' friends, and he is overwhelmed, and he can't not cry. The first thing that you need to know the first thing that my friends need to know, you never weep 
alone. And on All Saints Day, perhaps it is worth reminding us all that John portrays even the church now gathered in heaven, crying out on your behalf and mine, how long, O Lord? Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. I repeat, you never weep alone. Jesus' tears are also tears of anger. Jesus weeps in the second place out of fury. What lies behind verse 33's phrase, you'll see in the bulletin or in your insert, what lies behind verse 33's phrase, greatly disturbed in spirit, that sounds wonderful in Greek, I can't not do it, and then brimesata to pneumati. It's a Greek term that means to shake with fury and embrace a top pneumati, like a warrior prepared to go into battle, in imitation of which sports teams do their little pregame huddles. The second reason that Jesus weeps at Lazarus' tomb is because God has no patience with dispassionate aloofness and cold abstractions. He is too provoked at the evil that has befouled the beauty of his creation and has diminished you and finds murderous presences on the earth, even murderous presences in our own hearts. And Jesus' tears are tears of resolve. Jesus weeps in the third place because he despises the shame, to use the phrase from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. He despises the shame that lies ahead in his mission to make all things new. What lies behind another phrase in verse 33 of John chapter 11 and deeply moved, is actually a little more active than that phrase. Notice, he was deeply moved is passive. The Greek is actually active. He troubled himself. He moved himself. Jesus, a switch has flipped in Jesus, and Jesus has flipped the switch. Jesus' very presence among us is God became flesh. However you want to picture this, from the ivory palaces in heaven, the Son of God decided to come down. He didn't have to, but he did. On a rescue mission of mercy, in the weeping Jesus, the God-man literally has skin in the game. In this moment, Jesus anticipates his further tears in Gethsemane, the agony of the crown of thorns, the nails in his hands and feet, the spear in his side, the shame of the cross, all for you and me and Lazarus 
and the whole world. By way of brief application, if you will permit, on this All Saints Day, please be yourself a part of God's response to evil, part of the story that he propels out into the world from his band shell. Embrace his tears for you and take your place alongside people you know who are broken, wounded, worn out, hopeless, without answers, and in despair. Alongside them, weep, so that in your tears, they may see his tears. Be provoked. Be provoked as he is at evil in the world. Do not grow cynical calluses around your heart. Do what you can at the ballot box. Fight in your relationships with your neighbors and friends, fight for the chance in the conversation to bring up Jesus, to let them know that he loves them. And be resolved to make the church, hopefully this church, but if you belong to another one, hope make that church. Make the church a place that holds well the traditions that have been faithfully passed down to us by saints who have gone before us and who cheer us on in heaven now. Be resolved to make the church that you are a part of, one that ministers passionately and effectively right where we've been planted. And be resolved to make your church a place that captures the imaginations of generations that follow, so that with all God's saints we may come to those ineffable joys that our Father has indeed prepared for all who truly love him.